Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. We're bringing this series to a close. Really started earlier this year about talking about vision. The vision that God has for you. The vision that God has for this church. It's really not complicated. It's really, in essence, the vision that God has for everybody. But it starts with understanding this because it brings things into a focus. Vision is simply seeing. It's seeing what God sees. Seeing what God sees for us. And I don't know about you, but, but, but you know, many of us wear glasses. And that's because as we've gotten older, our eyeballs change shape just a little bit and other things, conditions can develop. And the result is the light that's coming in gets out of focus. And when the light gets out of focus, you don't see clearly. And if you don't see clearly, then it's, it, you don't know, you're not sure where you're going or where you're not going. And so vision is so important, not just because it, it helps us to have clarity with where we're going so that we can all go together, so that what really vision is, is all about taking what God sees and making it clear in our focus so that we can walk there and go there together. So often, and we made reference to this last week, so often it talks about, and they were together of one accord. They were speaking with one voice. That doesn't mean it was a unison where they all had on, because they didn't have TV screens back there, but they didn't have, you know, they didn't have a piece of paper in front of them or whatever it was, a slate, and were reciting the same things over and over again. They were of the same heart, the same mind, the same purpose, the same focus. God has a vision for Faith Christian Center, and He wants to bring us so we all see that with the same clarity so that we can go forth and do that. And that vision includes His vision for your life, because His vision for your life is not something separate. I think that's where we have to, re, we have to literally renew our mind to. We have this attitude, I think, so much that there is the secular world part of our life, and then there is the spiritual part of our life. So the secular part of our life is when I is going to work from 9 to 5, paying my bills, doing the laundry and all that you know, routine stuff of life, but there's nothing spiritual about that. The spiritual part of my life is when I come to church, it's when I read my Bible in the morning, because you do, don't, do, don't you? It's when I come to church on Wednesday night, and you do, don't you? It's, it's when I do all those things. That's the spiritual side of my life. But then there's the secular side of my life. But that's unscriptural. That's unscriptural. What if I did that in my marriage? I said, well, we have the romantic side of our life. That's when I love you and we, you know, we go out to eat and we do romantic things together. But the rest of the time, I just go do what I want to do. And, you know, on weekends, we'll have a date. and That's what dating's about. But once you're married, you're joined together. And everything of mine is hers. And everything of hers is mine. That's the essence of covenant. Our lives were joined together. Not just the romantic times, but the work times. I mean, yesterday we, had, we worked together doing something I do not like. It's yard work. <laughs> I know it's under the curse of the law. <laughs> but we did it together. And it wasn't romantic, but it was, it, we enjoyed our time together, and it helped deepen, it, you know, even things like that. Mundane things doing together deepen your fellowship and your relationship just as much as, you know, a romantic dinner by candlelight at some nice restaurant does. The same is true with God. The same is true with God. If you ever get a hold of that little book called 
practicing the presence of God. Now, there's some things in there that I don't believe line up with the scriptures. He talks about, you know, suffering and what he went through with suffering. But this was a simple monk in the 1600s that simply learned to walk with God. And he, was a, he, was a, he worked in the kitchen of the monastery. And when he dropped something on the floor, he learned how to pick it up with God. Whatever he did, he did with an awareness of God's presence, and he did all for the glory of God, even picking up a piece of lettuce that he dropped by accident. It's incredible the understanding that he knew about God because he walked with God throughout the day. We've got to learn that, that so God's vision for your life, God's purpose for your life is not separated from God's purpose for the church because the church is you and me. It's us. It's not the building. It's not the chairs. It's not the wonderful facility we have. It's us. It's, we bring the Spirit of God here when we come together. And so this is what we're talking about. And we're learning that God's called us together. The word church is a Greek word, ekklesia, which literally means kaleo, which means to be called, and ek out. So it means to be called out of something. What were we called out of? We were called out of the world. We were called out of the old way we used to do things. We were called out of the old way we used to think, the old way we used to talk, the, who we used to be. We were called out of those things. But one of the things you don't typically see, but if you study the word deep, more deeply, it says called out and called together for a purpose. So we're not just here to get out of the world. We're here for a purpose, together. And the true satisfaction of your life and your walk with God is going to be as you find that purpose and step into that purpose and begin to act on that purpose because that's why we're here. Otherwise, he would have just taken us out as soon as we were saved. We'd be saved. He'd give every preacher a Bible and a gun. (laughs) Once you you said amen to the sinner's prayer, and you're out of here because now you can't get any trouble. (laughs) But he's left us here for a reason. He runs that risk that we can go astray because there's a purpose for our being here. And all the more, I had people say, oh, the times we live in. And I was listening to somebody going over, oh, the terrible times we live in and all this stuff. And all that rose up in me is, yes, but it's for such a time as this. That's why we're here. We're here because these are hard times. We're here because these may become dark days. We're here because things are tough. Why? Because we're God's answer. Not in ourselves. We contain God's answer for the people that are hurting. And that's what we've been learning. So we've seen that Jesus has called us, and he's called us for a purpose. And he's called us to be fishers of men. And we began to look, after we started looking at that, we started looking in John chapter 4, because we see Jesus as a fisher of men. So we're going to wind this up by going back really to where we began, John chapter 4. And this is where Jesus here was fishing for this woman, and then through her, He caught a whole town. But that's not what I want to look at right now. We're looking to go to verse uh, 7. John 4, verse 7. And a woman of Samaria came to drink water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, and the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it you, being a Jew, ask a drink for me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. We've talked about that before. I'm not going to go back over it. And this is Jesus beginning to draw her in. What we've talked about is in order to catch fish, you've got to have the right bait. So we spent a bit of time now talking about what the right bait is and what the wrong bait is. We talked about that so much of the church is out there trying to catch fish with an unbaited hook. 
Why in the world would a fish bite a bent piece of barbed metal? They wouldn't. But that's what it takes to bring them in. But what they need is something they can identify with, something that's attractive to them, something that stimulates their desire to meet a need that's in that fish. Hunger, for instance. Fish is hungry, smells something that looks like it would satisfy that hunger, bites the thing that looks like it satisfies the hunger, and the result is the hook now catches them and the fisherman can draw them in. God is the fisherman. The Holy Spirit is the hook. But we're the bait. They're not going to bite on, on the Holy Spirit's drawing them. They won't be open to Him until they sense something in us that's attractive to them about what He's doing in our lives. So there's got to be something about us, and we talked about this. What about us draws them to us so that they would be interested in knowing about the God that has come into our lives? And so that's what bait's all about. And we've talked about that you've got to use the right bait. We've talked about the fact that Jesus, in John chapter 4 here, gives us an example of the right bait. We spent a whole week or two talking about the fact that He didn't come to condemn us. And so much of the world is out condemning sinners. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict them of their sin. Our job is to show them His grace and His love, to be that bait to them. And so we see Jesus here in a one-on-one encounter with a woman being bait to her, putting bait out. And now we're going to talk about what that is in us. And let's look what he says. In John chapter 10 now, he's, he's putting the bait out to her. He said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now I'm certain she's never heard of living water. She knew what water was because that's why she was there. It was a well. And she came with pots to fill up those pots so she could take them back. I mean, it's a little hard for us to relate to do nowadays because we have hot and cold running water just, you know, in our houses, in our kitchens, in our bathroom, outside for the hose to do yard work. Uh, So we've got water available to us. But not every society and not every culture nowadays has it. Sort of third world countries. We've even been in places where they don't have water running out of pipes in their house. They've got to go to the well with pots, with containers, so that they can bring back that day's supply or whatever amount they're able to carry and that they can use. So, so it's harder for us to relate to that. So she's not just here because she's taking a nice stroll on a morning day, nice morning day. She's there because there's something in that well she needs to live. And she's got to keep going back and forth every day, maybe more than once a day, filling up those pots and bringing them back down into the village to, to, for whatever purpose she needs. I don't, we don't, we're not told why, other than they need that water to live. Medical science will tell us that, that, that your body can go without food for 40 plus days. There are examples of people going beyond that. But you can't go more than several days without water. Water is an essential for life. And your body knows that because when you haven't had water, what do you become? This isn't a trick question. What do you become? You become thirsty. 
your mouth gets dry, you begin to want, you want something to drink. And if you don't satisfy that after a period of time, it becomes a craving. And if you don't satisfy it after even then, it becomes more than a craving. You, that's all you'll think about is getting something to drink because you're dry. Your body's becoming dehydrated. Your body's crying out for what it needs to sustain life. And so water here, she can understand what water is because that's why she's there. And now Jesus offers this new concept to her. But if you knew who the gift of God is that's with you, you would ask of Him and He would give you a different kind of water, living water. And so that we've seen before, that got her interest. That caught her curiosity. And the woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where then are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than the father Jacob who gave us the well? In other words, Jacob dug this well, but you're talking about something that never dries up. It's water that I don't have to come back here and keep drinking again. Jesus in verse 13 said, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst but that water shall give, I shall give to him shall become a fountain. Notice the water that I'll give him will turn into a fountain, a source of water, springing up unto everlasting life. That word in the Greek is zoe, which means not just everlasting in the sense of never dying, but it means life at a level that God lives it, basically. So living water is not just eternal life so that you don't die. Because the reality is the Bible teaches us that you are a spirit. Your spirit lives in a body. That's what we spend so much of our time paying attention to. But that's not who you are. Paul says in, a, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17, For this outward man is perishing. If you don't believe it, look at an old picture of yourself. And then look in the mirror. You don't look younger, you're going to look older. So I don't, I don't, I'm not going to confess that. You don't have to confess it. <laughs> now, you can do things to slow the process, but you can't stop it. It's scriptural. The outer man is perishing. It's going the wrong direction. And if you notice, things that used to be north go south. <laughs> Where you, where you used to have hair, it doesn't grow, and where you don't want it, it does. It's just, that's, okay? But the good news is, the inner man is renewed day by day, getting stronger. That's your spirit man. That's who you really are. And that spirit man's eternal. It's going to live forever someplace. It's either going to live forever with God which is everlasting life. That's not just forever, it's the quality of life. It's life at the level that God lives at. And so many, so few of us taste what that's like. But boy, once you get a taste, ooh, a, a taste, isn't that interesting? Once you get a taste of that, it creates a thirst for it. Because you now know there's something available to you you didn't know was there before. And you want more. And that's what he's doing here. It will become... Now, there's another place you can live forever. We'll talk about that down the road. The Bible teaches that there is a hell. A place of fire and brimstone. A place of unimaginable torment and horror and pain. And it is forever. 
And the Bible teaches there are only two destinations when you breathe your last breath. So that really should become an issue of great importance to us, not only for us, but for anybody we care about. Because we know three things. Well, two things. We know we're not going to live forever, so there's coming a day when every one of us is going to leave this earth. And the second thing we know for certain is we're going to go to one of those two places. Forever. There's no holding place somewhere in between, as many teach, where others can pray and give you gifts so that you'll go in one place or the other. The Bible doesn't teach that. To be absent from, the, from this body, Paul says, is for him to be present with the Lord. No holding tank in between. So, and the, but the good news is, you get to choose where you go. You get to choose where you go. And so, that's your spirit, man. And Jesus is talking to her and says, I would give you a water that's living water that will satisfy the deepest yearnings of your heart, of your life, of your need, of all of your needs in such a degree that you will be overflowing with it. And he calls it living water. Water represents here, we're going to seek more clearly, it represents life. God's life. God's zoe. God's not worried this morning. God's not afraid. God doesn't lack. God thinks clearly, sees clearly, understands clearly. God's full of joy. In fact, in His presence is fullness of joy. All of those are attributes of His life. God is all-powerful. All of those are attributes of His life. Would you like some of that? Three of you would like some of that. The rest of you are content with where you are. All right, then we'll go on. All right. Now, go with me to John chapter 7. Where we live... um, Some of our neighbors, I've watched their yards, and uh, a couple of our neighbors, uh, their yards in August would burn out. Now, this this year we had rain, so it wasn't so bad. Um, And you just, you know, they pour all their effort in the springtime, you know, fertilizing and doing all the stuff they do, and then, you know, middle of July comes, and then August comes, and we don't get the rains we got in May and June, and, and it gets hot, and that hot sun bakes on his yards and with all the work they put into it it dries up and the grass turns brown because the roots aren't very deep so what some of them have done is they bought a sprinkler system an in-ground sprinkler system so what happens is that when certain times of day when it's the, they've decided that it's appropriate because I'll go out and walk in the morning and you see these little heads come up we have them here too at the church and they'll start squirting water and I've noticed a difference in their yards in July and August because they don't burn out now. They're lush and they're green. Why? Because they're supplying water for, those, for that grass so that it doesn't dry up and burn up. Water's necessary for the grass to grow. 
And this living water is necessary for us to grow. But Jesus didn't stop there. John chapter 7. Now this story that we're going to look at occurs, it says in verse 37, on the last day of the great feast. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now what was happening here is the priest would go to one pool in Jerusalem and they would fill water pots up and they would all march. This procession would march over. I've heard different commentaries have said different places. The last one I looked at said the Pool of Siloam. They would go over there and they would pour this water out and they would do this every day for six days. Now again, you read different commentaries, you'll get different traditions that were done. One tradition I've read is that on the seventh day they came over, but they didn't pour the water out, and they would stand and basically say, where is the water? That's the scene. Every day they poured water out. A procession, they've gone and got water and brought it out. Now what this symbolizes most likely is Exodus 17. When Jesus, when, when, Jesus when, when the children of Israel, God brought the children of Israel supernaturally out of the desert, out of, out of Egypt, they're, they're several days into the wilderness and they realize they don't have any water. Their canteens are dry now. And they panic and they get angry at God and at God's representative Moses and they said, did you bring us out here to die? That became a refrain that they spoke out over and over again, which is interesting because they eventually got what they said, that generation did die in the wilderness. But that's a message, different message for a different day. So they came out. So they came to Moses and, and the, they found water there, but it was bitter water. And so God goes, Moses goes to God and says, these people are crying out. They're about to stone me. What should I do? And God says, take that staff, that rod that you that you struck the, 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 uh, the Red Sea with and it parted and hit that rock. And when you do, water will come out. So he does. He strikes the rock and water flows out of that rock. Sweet water, refreshing water. They couldn't drink the bitter water. It was poisonous or sour. Whatever was wrong with it, it w- they couldn't drink it so it wouldn't refresh them. But the water that comes out, now think of this, water coming out of a rock. If I'm looking for water in a dry place, a rock's the last thing I'm going to look at. Oh, there's an obvious source. A cactus, maybe. But a big, hard rock? And so this is symbolic of the supernatural source of that water. And over in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talking about the children of Israel said that they all followed the same cloud and they all drank from the same spiritual water or rock, which is Christ. So that rock represents Christ and the water represents living water, supernatural source of water coming out of Him to supply all of our spiritual and all of our innermost needs. So that's what this ceremony was, represent, was remembering and reminding them of. And on this particular day, they're walking over on the last day of the feast to do this same thing again. Now, whether they pour the water out or they say, who has the water, I don't know. But what we know is what Jesus said. And I want to give you that background because he's not just standing up with no crowd around. 
speaking out scriptures. He's responding to what's going on there. You ready for this? Especially if, if the priest cries out, Who has the water? On the last day of the great feast, Jesus stood crying out and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now here is the rock. They're going through a ceremony to remember that physical rock by which water came out. Paul tells us that rock was Christ. But here is Christ saying, don't go to the pool of Siloam. If anyone's thirsty, you don't need to go to the pool of Siloam. Hello? Come to me. If anyone's dry, if anyone's needy inside, if anyone's hurting, if anyone's lonely, if anyone can't sustain themselves, if anyone is hurting, whatever it is, if anyone's in bondage, if anyone has any need that involves life, let him come to me. And look at this. And drink. And he who believes in me. How many of you believe in him? God's watching. If any of you believe in me, and he who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his, the King James says belly, the New King James says heart, it means your innermost who you are, out of your spirit, shall flow rivers of living water. Now, in chapter 4, he told the woman to come to him, and if you're thirsty, I can give you water that will become in you a fountain of water so that you'll never thirst again. Now, a fountain of water, we've got little bubblers out here. A fountain of water is there for you to draw on whenever you have a need for the water, whenever you're thirsty. So he's saying, if you come to me, I will give you life, living water, that will become in you a fountain for you. So whatever you need, whenever you feel dry, it's in you to draw on, to satisfy that deep need you have. We need to learn how to do that. Because we try to satisfy that need all kinds of other ways. I'm talking about the church, believers. We try to satisfy that need through, through things the world offers us. We try to satisfy that need through, through I don't know, Whatever. Whatever, just look in your life. What is it you're looking to when, you, when you're hurting? What do you turn to? Do you realize that there's a fountain in you that's available to you to satisfy that inner loneliness and longing? Well, if you're lonely, what do you do? If you're hurting and discouraged, what do you do? Do you realize there's a fountain in you? But you know, our fountains work. You've got to go bend over it and push the button. You've got to draw on that fountain. Their wells, you had to go and draw it up. Timothy, Paul's son in the Lord, apparently went through some very difficult times, discouraging times, where he just felt weak and discouraged. And Paul at one point says to him, here's what you need to do, Timothy. Stir up. Stir up the gift that's in you. Many of us are waiting for God to do something. God, don't you know where I am? Don't you know what I'm going through? God, do something. And, 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 but you have in you, 
you have in you. If you're born again, you have in you a fountain, an endless supply of everything you need. Oh, doesn't Peter say that? For life and godliness. We ought to be the most joyful, positive, excited. I don't mean whipped up excited. That's not... I mean spirit excited. Positive, hopeful. That's that's one of the reasons we're here in this dark... The light's supposed to shine in the darkness. Well, we're trying, to, we're trying to work the light up mentally and emotionally instead of... Jesus said, let your light shine. He didn't say work it up. Let it shine. So if it's not shining, it's because that gift needs to be stirred up. That's, that fountain needs to be turned on. Maybe in some of our cases, it needs to be primed again. Because fountains flow. Fountains flow. We have a, uh, my, my grandfather built a place on the coast of Maine, and I remember that for years we had to go, if you're going to get water, we had one of these things. You know, it's a pump. And, and, and when we first got there in the springtime, or if somebody hadn't been there a while, it would, what's called, lose its prime. In fact, the, the, the electric pump we have sometimes does that. So we keep a bottle of water down there because if it loses its prime, it's just, pump, it just pumping air. So you've got to ta- put some water in so there's something for the pump to draw out. Some of you who feel so dry this morning, it's because you've got to put some in. You've got to put some in. You haven't been putting it in. How do I put it in? You've got to read your Bible. How do I put it in? You've got to, you've got to talk to God. You've got to pray in tongues. That's one of the ways you stir the gift up. Jude says, build yourself up by praying in the Spirit. It's something we're supposed to do. But so many of us are waiting for God to do something to get us out of this. And God said, I've, done, I've, I've given you all you need. Use it. Draw on it. Now, but what he's about to say, he's not talking about a fountain. That's what's been given to us as a resource for us so that we should always have an abundance of his life in us, available to us. Verse 36, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, out of his belly, shall flow rivers of living water. Now you understand there's a difference between a fountain and a river? I don't know if you ever had the experience of being going to Niagara Falls. That's not a fountain. And you know it's there before you get there. You can hear it. You can see the mist rising above it. In fact, I don't know now, but, but it was years ago that almost all of the northeastern United States was powered by that river. That's one river. But if I read my Bible correctly, it says, out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And that shall flow out of us. A well is something you draw up to satisfy your needs. But a river is something that flows out of you to meet others' needs. 
So not only does the Word of God say that God has put in us when we came to Christ every resource we're going to need to satisfy our greatest needs and desires that are godly inside of us, but God has given us more than that, more than enough to meet needs that are around us, not in ourselves, but in what He's put in us. Remember we talked before about the cracked pots? John Zabrowski gave me a picture. I guess Joyce Meyer was teaching something, and she had two pots up there. I don't know if any of you saw it. One of them, and she put lights in both of them. One of them had cracks in it, and the other was whole, and the light shone out of the cracks is what we talked about. Out of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, when he talks about that we have this treasure, this life, in cracked pots, in earthen vessels, so that the excellency of the glory may be of God and not of us. And so we're just talking about the same thing. But he has put in you. Now, this is for those who believe in him. So we've got to settle this. Because what we do so much is we read something like that, and then in our minds we water it down because I don't see it in my life. And I don't see it in many people around me. So we kind of water it down and say, well, that's a nice saying. It's the word of God. Either his word is true or it's not true. If his word's not true, then let's just shut this up, the church up, and let's just go have fun. That's what Paul said. He said, if Christ isn't risen from the dead, then let's just go have fun in this life because if this life there all there is, then let's just live it up now, which is the attitude of so many other people. If his word's not the truth, we've got to settle that. If his word is the truth then we've got to take him at his word, believe it because he said so, and expect to see it. But we do it the other way around. If we don't see it, then we doubt his word. But we would never tell anybody that. We just water it down in our mind. I remember reading, I was hoping to get this done today, but we're not. I remember one of the things that has meant so much to me as I've grown up in the Lord, and I'm still growing in the Lord. I've read probably six times the life story of Charles Finney. I could relate to him. He was a lawyer that got saved, and, 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 and God had used him mightily to start really the, the first great uh, uh, awakening in the, in the New England area and up into, northern, up into uh, western uh, New York State. And, and he would go to prayer meetings that his church had. He wasn't saved. He had a prayer meetings that his church had. And he'd sit there and come back really wondering. And so one day they asked him to pray, and he says, do you have any needs that you'd like us to pray for? He says, why would I do that? And they looked at him. He says, because I don't, by the, listening to you, I don't think you expect your prayers to be answered. So he had a simplistic approach. If we're going to talk to God, and God's real, and God's who the Bible says he is, then God will answer our prayers. But they didn't believe that. <laughs> and most of the church doesn't believe it either. I know it because I see, who's, I see how many people are here Tuesday night when we pray. Because if it's not, it's not like there aren't needs out there. We all know people that have needs. And we all have needs in our lives. And there's a power when we come together and pray together. And so it's expecting that God's... So my point is this. Do you believe that you're going to heaven? Let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12... 13, 14, 15, 16 people believe that. 17. Okay. The rest of you will pray for. Why do you believe you're going to heaven? Because what the Bible says, right? 
How can we go through and say, well, you, John 3.16 is true, but John 7.38 isn't? John 3.16, you must be born again. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's what you based your eternal salvation on. Because you believe in Him and therefore you believe He's done what He's doing and done and will do what He says He'll do. But if that's true, this must be true. Other words, part of it's true and part of it's not true. Once you go down that road, how do you know which is true? And this is worth thinking about. How do you... I didn't plan to get into this at all this morning. How do you see God's Word? It's, a, it's critical because that's what you base your life on. Do you believe that some of it's true and some of it isn't? And then there's some of it somewhere in between that it might work sometimes and doesn't work other times? Then how do you know which is which? Is it the part that's just in red letters? You know it wasn't written in red letters. But these are red letters in my Bible. You must be born again. These are red letters in my Bible. Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. So if that's true, that means in you and me who believe in Him is not just a fountain to flow up to life in me, but there's rivers of living water and the world around us is full of people that are dying of thirst. And we look out there and get overwhelmed. There's no way we can meet their needs. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. No, you're not. You're just a container of water. All we're doing is holding back the river. We need to let it flow. We need to let it flow. We need to let it flow. Acts chapter 1. Verse 4, Jesus has been crucified, been raised from the... Oh, I didn't finish reading. It says, it was very clear. The next verse says, and that those rivers, by that he was referring to the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given because Christ had not yet died. So there's no question that the, to those who believe that... In us, we're going to be rivers of living water and those rivers is going to be the Holy Spirit flowing out of us. But that wouldn't happen until Christ died and was raised. Now in Acts chapter 1, He's now died and He's now been raised. Let's see what happens. And being assembled together with them, He, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. You'll see that in Luke, the last chapter of Luke. For John truly baptized you with water, natural water, the same kind of water that the woman at the well came to get. But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
Therefore, when they come together, they were asking the Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom? They still didn't get it. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the season which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power. Now, a fountain doesn't sound like power, but the Niagara River sounds powerful. Rivers of living water. Several things about rivers. First of all, a good-sized river. You know it's there. Another thing, it affects things. Another thing, people around hear it. It has force to it. It moves things. We've had instances in the West Coast where they've had mudslides because of water. I've seen, when I was a boy growing up, on the Jersey Shore, I lived through a hurricane down there. We woke up one day and our house was surrounded by water. My grandfather built a house right on the shore. And fortunately, he had hurricane-proofed it. He put the telephone poles down into the water, into the, into the sand, and, and bolted the, the, um, the, the foundation of the house. We woke up one morning, and I heard water lapping around the house. I looked out, and we're surrounded by the ocean. That day, I saw roofs of houses float by. Next day, we went, drove up. We could get the water receded a little bit. We drove up, and I saw, I saw, I was still, I was, I think it was probably, well, I was seven years old. I saw a house sitting there, a cottage. I saw a wave come in, lift it up off its foundation, set it down, the wave went out. I saw another wave come in, lift the house up, and take it out with it. It gave me a healthy respect for the power of that water. Rivers of living water shall flow out of us. You shall be baptized not many days from now with the Holy Spirit and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. That's what we're talking about. Bait. We're talking about going out. We've talked about Jesus went out and he met people's needs. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He drove away oppression. He delivered people from bondages. That takes power. Something you and I can't do with our mind, something you and I can't do with our emotions and getting worked up about it, something that's got to create a, a source of power that's not naturally in you or naturally in me. But we're learning, He's put it in you, He's put it in me, and that source of power is the Holy Spirit in us when you've been baptized with it. And then you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, to all Judea, Samaria, and the other part, parts of the earth. Now go to chapter 2. They're gathered together. They're doing what he said to do. And on the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all, there it is, with one accord, one vision. They were there with one purpose. They didn't know what this meant. They didn't know what it was going to be, but they knew they were there to do this. So they were there waiting, seeking with one heart, with one mind, to receive whatever it is that Jesus said he was, they were going to have. Verse 2, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and sat upon each... I cannot imagine it's like this little big flame, lighter flame up there. We're talking about the glory of God. And the place was filled. It was a mighty rushing wind. Not this zephyr blowing in. If you've been in a hurricane, you know what a rushing wind sounds like. And it sat upon each one of them. Notice, everyone. And they were all 
They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, now we're going to come outside the church. Of course, it wasn't a church, it was a room, upper room. When they, we come outside into the streets now, when this sound occurred, the mold, so the people outside heard something. This wasn't a case where the soft music's playing and people were saying, oh, don't you feel the presence of God? Isn't this sweet? I'm not, don't mean that. That's inside the church. This sound was so loud that they heard it outside the church. I know it wasn't a church, but they heard it outside where they were gathered. And it was so demonstrative, so loud that they did something. When this sound, verse 6, when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused because they heard everyone speaking in his own language. Now, in order to do that, they're talking about hearing the people inside speaking different languages. Because remember, they're speaking in other tongues. The people inside must have now gone outside I'm going to say that again the people inside must have taken what happened to them inside this isn't hard and gone outside because it says they heard them the people who had been inside when they were baptized with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, they went outside with what they'd received inside. Otherwise, the people outside couldn't have heard them. And the testimony of the people outside, the testimony of the people outside is, and when they heard sound occurred, the multitude came together. So they got a crowd gathering together now. Nowadays, the church has to put up billboards, advertising, websites, in all this to try to get a crowd. They didn't have any of those resources. All they had was the Holy Spirit. That's all. But doesn't that show you what the attitude of the church has become? And we do that. We, you know, we have billboards, but we have a website and we understand all that stuff. But we can't rely on that. Those are the world's methods of advertising. And they're okay to utilize, but if that's what we're trusting in, then we're going to get the same results that the advertisers get. Customers. Looking for a product instead of people that have had an experience with God. The power of God. The deliverance of God. The love of God. The majesty of God. That transcends all the devil's done in their lives and overcomes it. When the sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused 
because they heard everyone speak in their own language. And they were all amazed and marveled and saying to one another, look, are not these who speak Galileans? By the way, that wasn't a compliment. That meant hick. Hicks. No, the, they were like not educated people. Because this is a very metropolitan city, Jerusalem. How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? In other words, when they say, these are Galileans, they haven't been to school. They've not been to language school. They don't have a degree in Parthenian language or dialects. These are men that are uneducated and they're speaking in our language. That was a sign and a wonder. We know that can't happen naturally because we know they didn't learn this naturally, but suddenly they're able to do something they couldn't do before that demonstrates that the presence and power and life of God is there. See, God knows how to advertise Himself. How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, speaking in tongues right now, uh, and Egypt, and parts of Libya, I can got that one, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Christians and Arabs, we hear them speaking in their own, they heard the disciples speaking in all these languages and dialects, speaking in our own tongues, and what were they speaking? The wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others were mocking, saying they're full of new wine. In other words, they're drunk. So they must not have been sitting there with their hands folded, with a pious, reserved look on their face. But so, so you got to understand, the disciples didn't know it was going to happen. They didn't come together for a Holy Ghost service. They just came together because Jesus said to. And the Holy Ghost showed up. When he showed up, things happened. They were just as shocked as the people outside. They didn't know what to expect. And they were giddy. They were free. They were joyful. I mean, I don't want to, we don't have time to get into all this. And and I, I know none of you have any concept of this. But how does a drunk act? I know, you've probably seen one on TV. I'm sure that's the case. I mean, by and large, they're not afraid of anything. Fear's gone, they're jubilant, they're uninhibited, I mean, just, you know, they're happy, they're joyful. That's what they were seeing. They were no longer caught. The reason a drunk gets uninhibited, they're not conscious of themselves anymore. They must not be, because if they really looked at what they look like, they'd never do it. They lost track of themselves. They were just free in God, free. They were so filled with the joy and the love of the God that, 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 they, that, they, that they couldn't contain Him. Not because they were supposed to. They just couldn't contain Him. Peter gets up and preaches. This is what the prophet Joel foretold what was going to happen. Told you about Charles Finney. 
and we'll end today with a story. He, um, he goes on this tremendous conviction. He'd go to these meetings. He'd get so frustrated and discouraged because didn't, they didn't believe what they were preaching. They, even the preacher wasn't saved. And he just finally said, look, I've got to get... I got to find the answer myself. So he took his Bible and he went out into the field and he just began to read it and cry out to God because he felt the conviction of being a sinner. We've lost that. We don't remember what we were saved from. Peter says if you don't if you forget what you were saved from, you won't appreciate what you've been saved into. When we have to work up being praising and thanking God, we've forgotten what we were saved from. I've been saved 34, 35 years. I've forgotten what it is. And, and, and you know, but I, I still remember what things were like. And, and he was under such conviction of, his, of sin in his life. That he was going to go to hell. That's what it was. Let's simplify it. He, was, he knew if he died, he was going to hell. And he went out in the woods one day and he just began to cry out to God. And, and he, got, he, he, wouldn't, he, he got down under a tree limb that had broken down. And, he, and, and he's trying to cry out to God and, he's, and he's, the more he cries out, the more discouraged he gets. And the more he thinks, I've, lo- my, I'm, I've, lo- I've lost my soul. That's why God's not answering me. Until all of a sudden he said it was like I could stand back and see myself and he saw that he was hiding under this tree because he was afraid somebody was going to see him. And all of a sudden it hit me. Hit him, he said. Here I am, a sinner. So afraid that somebody would see me on my knees crying out to a holy, merciful God that I'm hiding under a, rock, under a tree. He realized his pride. So he came out from under the tree, got down on his knees in the open, and cried out to God. And, and God came into him immediately. He knew he was saved. He went back to his law office that day because he had some cases to prepare. He said, I couldn't concentrate. My, I was just giddy. I remember being saved. I felt like I, I was 30, I've forgotten what year, 35, 36 years of age. And I was, it was like, and, and I felt like I was a teenager that had fallen in love. I got up the next morning, I was giddy. All the lawyers in my office looked nice. The guy bought my donuts and coffee. What big, heavy guy? He, I just wanted to kiss him. He was, I was just, I was in love with everything and everybody. That's what happened to him. He said he went to bed that night and he woke up in the middle of the night, and he said it's like somebody was pouring warm honey down over him. It was love. He said I've got bathed in the love of God. He was being filled with the Holy Spirit. He said it changed me so dramatically. He says, I, I, got, I, I went, finally went back to sleep after like three hours of this. Got up again the next morning afraid this had gone away. He said, and I went to go out in the outer office where my senior partner was who'd come into work and it hit me again and I just started falling apart crying uncontrollably and just the love of God for me, the love of God just sort of waving over me he says I couldn't contain it he said I had a case to try that morning the client came in and said you know he said well are you ready for the case he says no I'm going to preach for Jesus now I'm going to plead his case he said but it changed his life immediately the power of God the spirit of God we desperately need rivers of living water but how are we going to let those rivers flow through us to the world if we haven't learned 
to draw on the fountain of that water that's in us. Mm-hmm.